It is great to be with you guys. I am loving our study in Colossians. I love, like Lucas is saying, just let the Word of God speak for itself and to speak with the power and authority that God has poured into it since it is His Word to us and how it just shapes our lives and speaks to us. And whether it's a, a transformational moment where some thinking in our minds just shifts and something radically changes, or whether it's like water over a stone and it takes time, but that water smooths away rough edges and makes that, uh, you know, that rock wall take a new shape. Whatever God's Word is doing, it's transforming us. I'm grateful to be a part of that with you. This week we are picking up in Colossians chapter 2. And I want to just go ahead and start by reading through the passage, and then we'll, we'll jump in together. So if you would, open up, uh, and then skip down to verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the, again for the transforming work that you want to do in our lives. Not to leave us as you found us, but to make us more and more like you created us to be, fashioned into the image of your Son, fully the people that you have in your heart for us to be, living out um, your plans in this world, growing in closer fellowship with you, and sharing the love that you've given to us, to the world around us. We pray that this morning as we look into your word, that you would by your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and that we would hear your voice as we're listening, not any person or individual that ultimately speaks to us, but you speaking to each one of us individually and as a church collectively. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we finished last week, I don't think there was any malicious intent when Lucas, our, our beloved pastor and teacher, stopped in verse 15. I know he wouldn't be that way towards us, but he did leave us with a bit of a cliffhanger ending. Again, I'm not saying there's any sort of malice. I don't, I, please don't hear that. But it nonetheless was a cliffhanger ending when we finished in verse 15. And cliffhangers have to be one of the most frustrating storytelling devices that there is. One of those structures in storytelling that just, it gets at you. For example, when the Empire Strikes Back ends, rebellion has been driven from Hoth. Han is frozen in carbonite. And Luke has been defeated by Darth Vader, who in an unexpected twist turns out to be his father. <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. It's going to be three years 
from the release of that movie before the return of the Jedi helps resolve all those plot points. And in the meantime, the fans have to bite their nails wondering about the fate of Luke and his friends and will the rebellion win or will it be snuffed out? That's three years is a long time to be held in suspense. But it's that same suspense, that same prolonged sense of unfinished business that makes cliffhangers also such a rewarding storytelling structure. When all those impossible plot points seem to be woven together and we see how all things are resolved, there's such a wonderful release. We say, oh man, that was so cool how it all happened. Seeing the loose ends of a storyline tied up is something that we innately desire within us. And so it's so rewarding when that cliffhanger resolves. And so this week we're picking up in verse 16, if you noticed, which opens with the word, so... And with this word, Paul is going to launch into a series of powerful applications and exhortations, but they're only possible because of the truths that were contained in the verses leading up to these. And the thoughts and ideas that fill out the rest of our chapter and really the end of the book are all possible because of what has come before. And so when we finished last week, we left on a cliffhanger even if we didn't realize it. Now, as we begin, as we move into the end of the chapter and really the end of the book, Paul wants to address our present day living, the way that we conduct ourselves today. He wants to address our daily Christian experience, but he can only do that by building on the person and work of Jesus, only by looking at what Jesus has accomplished in the past. And it's a reality in which we live that the past always shapes our present day experience. And there is no more powerful historical events than the death and resurrection of Jesus. No events in history are going to more shape our present day than what Jesus did on the cross and rising from the grave. These implications of these two events shape all of human history, both before and after. So Paul is building on these things, and he launches into our text with the word so. It connects the thoughts that came before with the ones that he's about to continue to share with us. And as we get started, I want to use another storytelling device, and that's the opening recap. Maybe it's uh, you watch a show, and they always begin by saying previously on, and then they kind of loop you in with what's happened in the last show, especially those events that surround the cliffhanger ending of the previous episode. So with that, I'm going to start with previously in the letter to the Colossians, Paul opened up chapter one, you remember, with this greeting. He greets them warmly. And he lets them know he's under Roman imprisonment. It's been a, a, it'll be a two-year stretch there in the prison in Rome, beginning at the end of Acts and then continuing on past that historical record. And though he's under lock and key, Paul was able to receive visitors, to communicate with the outside world, to make that truly a useful time. We have the letter of Ephesians, the Colossian letter that we're studying here, as well as the letter of Philippians. But Paul was also able to see the gospel go out into the household of Caesar, and many there locally were transformed by his time in prison. And when we see these things, it's a reminder that God never wastes a single season in our lives, even those seasons that feel like a prison to us. 
And, and I kind of feel like that's for someone or some of us this morning. It's not the main point of the study. It was just an aside, but I felt like, man, there's some weight to that for someone here this morning. You might feel like you're in a prison season of some sort. It's unpleasant to you. The circumstances feel like they're either locking you in place or preventing you from living and acting in the way that you think is most fruitful. And yet God is not wasting a single moment of what you're going through. He's transforming the prison-like circumstances that you feel to make them fruitful in his hands. And so don't kick against those things or only think that you'll be fruitful when you're in a new season, but say, God, use this right here, right now. Just like you did with Paul, making his prison sentence incredibly fruitful. We're still bearing the fruit and receiving the fruit of Paul's prison time right here today. God never wastes a single season, even those that feel like prison to us. While his various people would visit Paul and bring news and take news, he learned of the state of the Colossian church. And chapter 1 reminds us that the gospel had come to Colossae and was beginning to bear much fruit among the people there. Lives were being transformed radically as they were delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. They had heard and believed the gospel, the grace of God, and just like it will do for us, it was transforming them. But sadly, the story doesn't end with the Colossians living happily ever after. Um, In chapter 2, we really begin to sense the deep conflict and the deep concern that Paul had for these believers. He's deeply concerned that false teachers will begin to pull them away from the truth of the gospel. That false teaching and false thought will begin to undermine the foundation of Jesus. That they'll be pulled away by persuasive words. Paul was concerned that these believers would be moved away from the completeness that is in Jesus, cheated through philosophy, empty deceit, and the powerless traditions that man creates. And so Paul makes significant effort throughout the letter to highlight the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Let me just say that again. In light of all these threats that he sees to the Colossians, his response is to highlight the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Rather than uh, addressing every single threat that could possibly exist to the Colossians, he addresses the one answer to all of them, spending his time looking at Jesus and then allowing that to trickle out to some of the threats. In Jesus, we're reminded that we see the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus, God in the flesh, the very visible image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God among us. We see the Father. To quote the Christmas song, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God among us. And since Jesus is who he is, we are then complete in him. Because he is who he is, we now have a standing, a completeness in him. All we need is him. And the beat of this message has been building and building and building across these last couple chapters until it crescendos in verses 11 through 15, chapter 2. And last week, Lucas did a wonderful job at explaining and communicating the multifaceted work of Jesus, showing from all these different angles what God has done for us through Jesus. 
He also did a wonderful job of communicating not just the value of these things, but the excitement about them. These things are incredible. These aren't just dry, dusty truths to sit on the page, dead and dull. These things stir our hearts and minds as we think on them. To think on these is to respond, God, you are so good. Who am I that you are mindful of me? My soul magnifies you, Lord, and my spirit rejoices in you, God, my Savior. To read these truths stirs us. And so we are complete in him. And he is all in all. And that's where the cliffhanger came, right? Because we stopped there. Which is good. It's good to have this elevated view of Jesus. But it's like we left our hero or our heroine launching off of a cliff. And then the credits roll. And now we're opening up and Paul is saying, here's the rest of the story. Here's where they grab hold of the helicopter or whatever it is that the story resolves. We continue. So Paul says, so then, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of who he is, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. We left off with a high view of Jesus last week, but Paul had more yet to say. He wasn't done making his point when we closed last week. And beginning here in verse 16, he begins to apply those wonderful truths to our daily living. And the rest of chapter 2, and like I said, really the rest of the book, is all about applying these truths, calling us to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And the first line of application Paul makes here is a powerful one. And it's aimed specifically at some of the ideas that were creeping into the Colossian church. Now, because these believers were complete in Christ, no one should or could judge them on the basis of food, drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. And of course, these are all references to the Old Testament laws that frame and shape the Jewish life and the Jewish people. These are the defining points of Jewish culture and the way that God has called them to relate to him. But, like Paul says, these things are only shadows of what is to come, or rather, who is to come. In their own and together as a whole, they anticipate Jesus. They're a signpost, he would say, in Galatians a teacher to point us towards Jesus. They point towards him away from themselves. And just as a shadow is not worth comparing to its source, so too these elements are not worth comparing to Jesus. I love that Paul uses this word picture, a shadow versus the substance. It's one that we can easily grasp. We know that when we see this silhouette, that it's Michael Jordan that we're seeing. Though I will say, until I did a little digging for this study, I didn't realize this was from an actual photo shoot and not from gameplay. We understand that this shadow, it actually speaks of this photo, this reality. We know that that shadow, that outline, it speaks of someone who's real. There's a real person, a real player behind that silhouette. Now, no one is going to print off that jump man symbol and print it in big six by foot or six foot, six inch version of it, place it at their dining room table and think they're having dinner with Mike. No one's going to be thinking that by doing that, I am active, actively hanging out with the real guy. They understand, we understand the shadow is not to be compared with the substance. 
But the believers in in Colossae were being encouraged to do the spiritual equivalent, equivalent of just that. There was pressure from the legalists to incorporate the Jewish laws back into their daily practice. To observe the feasts and festivals, the other calendar events that so define the Old Testament. Last week, in verses, verse 11 and following, Paul, Paul mentioned circumcision. And all these things, as you add them up together, the legalists were saying, you need to observe the law of Moses in order to be truly right with God. Now, whether they were doing this intentionally or unintentionally, the legalists were challenging the idea that Jesus is enough. Maybe they were deliberately trying to wear down that foundation, or maybe it was just an unintended consequence of the position they had taken. But the collective end was to say that Jesus, in and of himself, is not enough. And we have to watch out for this temptation in our lives, even today. Now, at the risk of stating something that probably and hopefully many of us already understand, let me just say it plainly. Jesus is enough. Okay, period. End of sentence. Jesus is enough. You do not need to keep any religious system, whether it's Jewish or otherwise, in order to have a righteousness before God. As verses 9 and 10 say, in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him. He's enough. No one is saved by keeping the law of Moses. Salvation is by Jesus and Jesus alone. Solo Christo, the church has fought for over the ages. You do not need to observe a dietary framework to follow the feasts and the other calendar events, to have circumcision or any other aspect of the law of Moses in order to be saved and have a right standing before God. When God handed those things down at Mount Sinai, he was giving his people a silhouette of Jesus. He was showing them the shadow. These things couldn't actually save them. They only pointed the people towards the one who could. They helped give more shape and more definition to the faith of God's people, but they could never save God's people. And they're still unable to save. The New Testament fights the battle against legalism in so many places. We see it in Acts 15 there in the early church. The battle against legalism is the main theme and thrust behind the book of Galatians. In Galatians 4, 9, Paul will say that the law is weak and beggarly compared to the power that's in Jesus. It's a significant part of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrew reasons with us that the law was never able to save. That the very fact that the the sacrifice is repeated over and over and over again says that they're insufficient. Because why do you need to have a sacrifice again next year, next month, or even next week if today's sacrifice can actually remove your sin? The repetition of the sacrificial system spoke to its inadequacy to save us. Please hear me in this. You do not need to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. 
Now, there might be wonderful insights into God's plans. We might gain great depth of understanding that the foundation of what Christianity is built upon. We may grow in our understanding of the scriptures by understanding the Old Testament and looking at these things. But there is no salvation to be had in the law of Moses. You do not need them in order to be saved. And like Paul says here, don't let anyone judge you in this way. Don't let anyone put that on you. Now, I think, however, there's a little bit of value in abstracting this a bit. I think one reason why we find so many warnings against legalism is that we human beings are simply bent towards it. It's just who we are. We are bent towards works as a way of relating towards God and one another. There's something that's naturally within us that's drawn to works as a means of relationship. And if you're anything like me, you're not at all tempted to go under the law of Moses and to use it as a means of relating to God. I am not in any way, shape, or form interested in adapting a kosher diet. It's just not going to happen. I'm too lazy to observe a bunch of feasts that are on the Jewish calendar. And I'm certainly not going to start sacrificing things in my backyard. So I'm safe from legalism, right? I don't have to worry about this. I don't ha- I'm not going to go back to those things. Sadly, I'm not safe from legalism. And you're not safe from legalism either, even if you're not tempted to use the Jewish system of relating to God. The subtle traps that appeal to me, and perhaps to you as well, are how am I doing on my church attendance? I relate to God on, man, I've been really hitting my Sunday mornings. I'm I'm doing pretty good. Or maybe I use uh, how I'm doing as a husband, or how I'm doing as a dad, or an employee as my metric of how I'm doing with God. Did I have quiet time this morning? And if so, how long did I read and how long did I pray? That's how I relate to God. Did I get angry at my wife, my kids, or the crazy nuts on the road who make my drive to the office of battlefield look like a scene from Mad Max or something like that? Is that what I use to relate to God? And just like I have my own unconscious list of things, you have an unconscious list of things that you're prone to using as the basis and the gauge of health of your relationship between you and God. The problem with legalism isn't just found in the law of Moses. Rather, it's found in our fallen sin nature. The problem isn't the law, it's us. We're just naturally inclined to relate to God on the basis of our works. And because the problem is within us and not just some external thing, we need to constantly guard against legalism and the way it creeps in saying you're righteous before God because you did these things and didn't do these things. We have to constantly remind ourselves that Jesus is sufficient and I'm complete in him. If the New Testament can call the law of Moses weak and beggarly, how much more so church attendance as a means of relating to God? If the God-given sacrifices of the Old Testament are insufficient to save, how much more so my silly efforts to make myself righteous before God? Paul is once again warning us against legalism. We can't let anyone judge us on the basis of these things 
We can't let anyone pressure us or beguile us into thinking that there's confidence that we should have in these things. And that includes us. No one outside of us and not the internal monologue that runs within us. So as we sit here today, I would imagine that our greatest threat is not so much people speaking from the outside, but that our greatest threat regarding legalism actually comes from within. And so guard your heart. Guard your mind. Like verse says, uh, 6 says, You received a finished work in Jesus. Now walk in that finished work. You're complete in him this morning. You have a righteousness that's unassailable and perfect in Jesus. And so let's not fall for the trap that we need to add anything in addition to Jesus. Now as we move into verses 18 and 19, Paul continues to apply this finished work of Jesus to our lives. And his next target is the idea that we grow deeper with Jesus through mystical pursuits, that there's deeper knowledge, that we can grow deeper in spirituality, excuse me, apart from Jesus. Legalism said that we could be righteous apart from him. Mysticism says we can grow deeper apart from him. Verses 18 and 19, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. The people that Paul is warning about here are no longer clinging to Jesus as their all in all. You can see it. They've let hold of Jesus, the head of the church. Instead of realizing that he's sufficient and that they're complete in him, they begin looking for other spiritual things. They had a hunger for spiritual matters, which is good, but they weren't content to find those answers in Jesus. There has to be more, right? It just can't be Jesus alone. There were secrets to be discovered, hidden knowledge to pursue. There were angels to be known and visions to be examined. And yet none of these things had the transforming power or the effect of saving us that Jesus has. Again, these folks were no longer abiding in Jesus as the head. And as a result, none of the life-giving, transforming power was showing up in their lives. But sadly, their sales pitch of a deeper spirituality, of better insights, of hidden knowledge, it was appealing to the Colossians. I mean, if you think about it, the person who says, I want to know God more, already has an inherent desire within them to know more. I want to know more, and I want to know God better. But when we forget that Jesus is sufficient and that we're complete in him, we're taking that appetite to other places. And sadly, when we think that we need more than what we have in Jesus, like Paul says, we begin to cheat ourselves, or we allow others to cheat us. Either way, we lose the reward that Paul speaks of at the beginning of verse 18. To know Jesus in and of itself is a reward that makes all others small by comparison. In Philippians 3, Paul said that Jesus was the trophy that he wanted to pursue above all others. others. And any trophy that the world could give him was trash 
compared to knowing Jesus. Have you guys ever met someone like this who's just a treasure in and of themselves to know? Uh, Maybe the things that they've seen in life, the stories that they could tell, the wisdom that they could share, it just makes them a treasure just to know that person. I had a friend like this when we lived in Oregon named Carl. Uh, Carl was born in 1931. And he would have been in his probably early 70s, right around 70 years old or just over turning the, the corner there when we began hanging out. Now, I was born in 1976, and so there's 45 years between Carl and myself. And normally, that age of time, that span of time, it doesn't make for natural friendships. But man, I could see Carl's zeal for the Lord. I could get a sense just from watching him from a distance how he had lived for God and how those years had been used by God. I could tell he had a wealth of experience to share with me if I was willing to listen. And so his passion for God and his experience in life, these were, these were things I wanted to pick up on. Just hanging out with Carl and gleaning from him was a treasure for me. But how much more so is Jesus better than Carl? Or pick the person that you have in mind. If hanging out with Carl was a treasure for me, how much more so knowing Jesus and who he is and gleaning from my Savior, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. How much more reward is there in knowing the one who created all things and now upholds them by the word of his power? How much more reward is there in knowing the one who loves us so much that he laid down his life for us, paid the debt of our sin, and wiped away the list of our crimes that was stacked against us? Jesus is a treasure in and of himself worth pursuing. And how can it be possible that there is something better than pursuing him? Are you going to exchange the knowledge of Jesus for the chance to know an angel? I'd say, hey, the idea of seeing an angel, that sounds like biblically a pretty frightening event. But there's also part of me that's like, I'm curious. Sure, let's do this. Like, put the couch back here so when I fall down, I land somewhere soft. But yeah, I want to see an angel. But compared to Jesus... No, there's, there's no question. Who would I rather see, God the Son or some created being? There's no exchange. Sure, I want to have spiritual visions, but I want to know Jesus more. What knowledge could I find that's better than knowing Jesus and the instruction that he gives me? Is there some hidden knowledge that goes deeper than the infinite Son of God? To pursue these things or to be led towards them by others is to be cheated from what is better. It's to be cheated out of what is better. It's to settle for the small or even the untrue in exchange for that which is infinite and true. It's leaving behind that which has substance to pursue that which is empty. And when you put it like that, of course we wouldn't trade the infinite reward of knowing Jesus for any of these uh, these small things. But in the moment... In the moment, of course, there's something to it that appeals to us. Notice again, as you look through it here, the folks troubling the Colossians delighted in hidden knowledge and esoteric spiritual matters. They weren't reluctant participants in these things. There was something that just, it made them feel good. They delighted in these things. 
These so-called spiritual pursuits, it puffed up their fleshly minds. It appealed to their carnal nature in some strange, twisted way. And sadly, we are all prideful creatures. The love of self, pride, it's this pervasive cancer in our every thought, action, and word. And so things that appeal to our pride naturally appeal to us. And there's always going to be something appealing to the sales pitch that offers to puff up our fleshly minds. Jason, you can go deeper. You can have greater insight. I've got something special for you. Your mind can handle these things. And my pride says, oh, I want that. My fleshly nature says, I need that. I'm going to pursue it. Dang, again, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Jesus. He is all in all, and we are complete in him. When we hold fast to him, the head of all things, all the growth that we could possibly need is freely supplied. The way to grow spiritually is not through the empty promise of mysticism, that there are deeper truths and hidden things to pursue. It's not in pursuing angels or looking for the next person who has had a spiritual vision. The way to grow deeper spiritually is to be found in holding fast to Jesus, our head. In him, if you were to look back in the chapter, are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him is the insight and revelation that we deeply desire. He is sufficient, and we are complete in him. Now, before we move into chapter 3, and don't be worried, we're not going to do that this morning. But as we move through our studies, Colossians, there's one more threat that Paul wants to address here in chapter 2. You could call this one asceticism. Asceticism, just for kind of a dictionary definition, is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, particularly and typically for religious reasons. Uh, You can actually see it uh, there in verse 21, where Paul says the examples of these things were do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Uh, This was the denial of the body and its appetites for the purpose of becoming more spiritual. You were an ascetic. The idea here, legalism, you can become more righteous by adding the law. Mysticism, you can go deeper by pursuing things outside of Jesus. Asceticism is saying you can change your heart by denying your flesh. Verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic, basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. As we're trying to shape these ideas in our mind, asceticism and legalism, they're related. Asceticism is legalism's cousin, who has taken the family traits too far and too seriously. A person who subscribes simply to the Old Testament law, someone who's maybe under the Jewish system, or even today a person who's legalistic, can still have a life that enjoys the blessings that we find in this world. They can still enjoy good food. They can still enjoy the companionship of their spouse. They can still experience God-given wealth without it, uh, you know, corrupting them. 
But an ascetic rejects all those things, thinking that by denying the body, they're drawing closer to God and changing their hearts. An ascetic looks at, li- at the life of the legalist and says, look, I see your religious practice, and I'm going to raise you a hundred more. An ascetic takes it too far too seriously. Now, as you look at this, I just want to make a quick distinction between the life of an ascetic and something like fasting. Fasting is a wonderful religious practice, a spiritual practice in which we temporarily deny the flesh and its appetites in order to pursue God personally. It's a practice we see in Jesus and the disciples and so many others, Old and New Testament alike. It is temporary in nature, however. And asceticism is a lifestyle that seeks to change the heart by denying the flesh. It's the idea that I can change this. I can bootstrap myself up towards a greater spirituality. But in each of the areas that we've covered this morning, whether it's legalism, mysticism, and now asceticism, there is always this desire to grow spiritually, but none of them go about it the right way. We saw that legalism, it tries to provide a righteousness by following rules when we have a perfect and unassailable righteousness from Jesus. Mysticism said there's a way to grow deeper through spiritual knowledge and insight when all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. And now asceticism, it's trying to change our hearts by denying our flesh when Jesus is there to give us a new heart that changes the behaviors of our flesh from the inside out. Again, Jesus is sufficient and we're complete in him. All that we need for life and godliness is found in him. And to look for these things, whether it's righteousness or spiritual depth or transformation, outside of him is to leave what is real for that which cannot deliver. And look again at how Paul dismantles asceticism. In verse 22, he reminds us that asceticism focuses on the things which are temporary, things which perish in the thought that somehow it's going to affect and impact the eternal. He says that it's the teachings and traditions of men foolishly thinking that we can tell God how we're going to approach him. And lastly, in verse 23, asceticism has no actual ability to change our fallen nature. I mean, what a statement, what a dismantling of this uh, train of thought The last sentence of chapter 2, they are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now this way of thinking, this self-discipline, it might be well intended. Deny the flesh in order to draw near to God, but it has it all backwards. Let me just say that again. It may have the right idea, deny, deny the flesh in order to draw near to God, but it has it backwards. The desire to stamp out our sinful desires that live within our flesh is one that we should all have. We should all desire to be more holy today than we were yesterday and continuing on. That's a good thing. In fact, Paul is going to talk a lot about that as he gets into chapter 3 and following. He's going to tell us to put off and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul is not against a holy life or seeing sinful desires stamped out. But do you notice in your book of Colossians which chapters come first? Chapters 3 and 4 or chapters 1 and 2? Anyone? Chapters 1 and 2, right? At least in my Bible. 
It's the chapters that contain the worth and wonder of Jesus that come before how we live. The chapters that point out how high Jesus is and how sufficient he is come before the ones that tell us to put off and put to death the things of the flesh. Chapters 3 and 4, the chapters that contain a transformed life, come after this wonderful discussion of Jesus. Paul will never get this order inverted, and we shouldn't either. The order is always important. Before Paul ever tells us how to address the issues of our flesh, he always shows us how Jesus addresses the issues of our heart. Before Paul tells us to do anything, Paul tells us what Jesus has done. He tells us that Jesus is sufficient and that we are complete in him. Chapters 1 and 2 always come before chapters 3 and 4. It's not rocket surgery, people. You guys know there's a word for that when you mix a metaphor? It's called a malaphor. I love it. We'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Don't worry about it. You know, the tricky bit of these ideas that drawing near to God and changing our flesh is that they're related. They're connected. There's a correlation and a connection between these two. But one causes the other, and they only go one direction. It's the order of operations that asceticism gets backwards. The order is not just important, it's essential. This morning I put on my socks and shoes. You probably did too. But we all did it in a certain order, right? If you want the socks and shoes to work like they should, to work well with one another, you have to do them in the right order. It's not just that you get them both together at the same place at the same time. You have to do them in the right order. The order is not just important. It's essential. And the same is so much more true when it comes to drawing near to God and changing the flesh. These two ideas that the ascetics had, but they had the order reversed. It's drawing near to God that changes the flesh. We don't change the flesh in order to work our way to God. It's just the opposite. We draw near to God and he transforms us. God never says in the scriptures, you put yourself together and once you've done that, then come talk to me. Always the invitation is come to me and I will give you a new heart Your sins might be stained like scarlet right now, but I will make you white as wool. Your sins are red like crimson, but I will make you white. I will cleanse you. That's the order of operations. He doesn't say, wash away those stains, figure it all out, and then come to me. The invitation is always, come to me. I'll make you white as snow and white as wool. You may not think of yourself as an aesthetic, an ascetic, I I doubt many of us do. But, just like with the other two things, we are all given to this sort of backwards thinking, this inversion of the order here. It is human nature to think that we can clean and cover ourselves up in order that we might approach God. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden after they sinned? They made coverings for their nakedness, right? They made these fig leaf outfits. They thought, we'll do this so that when God comes to walk in the garden with us, we'll be approachable by him. We'll be presentable to him. We'll cover this up. We'll do it. 
will solve this problem. And again, that will make it possible for us to walk with God. And if you think that same instinct isn't buried in your heart, you're not paying attention. You're oblivious to this whole side of who we are as human beings. It's deep within us to work our way to God, to change the outside, to cover up the outside, to make ourselves acceptable to him. To one degree or another, the air of asceticism lives in all of us. There's no exceptions in the room. The same is true for the errors of legalism and mysticism. And so you and I, we need to constantly remind ourselves that Jesus is sufficient. And we, I, you, are complete in him. As we wrap up this morning, I want to read you a quote from a Bible commentator named Arno Gabelin. Uh, He was working on his commentary in Colossians about a hundred years ago, late 1918, 1920-ish, somewhere in that range. And he made this comment. Only a constant realization of our position in Christ and holding fast the head will keep his people in the days of apostasy. May God's people today, the faithful remnant, never lose sight of the two vital truths of these two chapters, one and two, In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him. A hundred years ago, Arno was looking at the world around him and seeing threats on the spiritual landscape against the people of God, against a healthy Christian life. And he understood the answer in his day was the same answer when Paul was writing Colossians, and it's the same answer for us today. We need to have a clear view of who Jesus is and a clear view of our position in him. Gang, the threat is real. These are not ideas that Paul is kind of manufacturing and artificially inflating to sell more copies of his book. The threats of legalism, mysticism, asceticism, they are outside us and within us. They're alive and well today. And so what rules and regulations might you be counting on to make you more righteous before God, to make you acceptable in God's eyes? Did any of what I was saying about my things, church attendance, Bible reading, prayer, you know, how I behave at home, is any of that your mechanisms for relating to God, how you count and gauge your righteousness? What's appealing to your fleshly mind this morning saying you can go deeper by pursuing these things? What's appealing to our fleshly mind saying, this is, the, this is spiritual. This is where depth is found, and it's apart from Jesus. And in what ways are we trying to transform our lives so that we can approach God rather than drawing near to Him and trusting that He'll transform our lives? What way are we inverting that order? And as we see these things creep up and as the Holy Spirit brings them to our attention in the days and weeks to come, let's respond appropriately and just put those down and say, no, Jesus is sufficient and I am complete in him. He has handed me a finished salvation, not a starter kit, a finished salvation. So let's battle against these things, whether they come within us or they're threats that come from outside us. Let's remember that Jesus is, is the fullness of the Godhead. He's God the Son, sufficient in all ways, and we are complete in Him. We're going to close this morning in prayer. 
But as we do so, let's turn back to Colossians chapter 1 if you need the reminder like I do, or if you're able to repeat Paul's prayer from memory, let's stand as a church family together this morning. And as we read through this, I just want to encourage you to not only recite these words, but as much as you can, grab a phrase, grab a snippet, and pray it for yourself, for a family member, a friend, or for us as a church. And so let's not just make this a, a recital together, but let's pray this over one another this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This morning, Lord, we want to say thank you that what you extend to us, fallen, broken, rebellious humanity, is not a starter kit saying you figure it out You get yourself put together and then come talk to me. But you generously and humbly stoop low to our level. Like an adult taking a knee before a child to see them eye to eye and saying, here, here's a finished salvation given freely to you if you just receive it. If you just embrace it and make it your own. Thank you, God for what you extend to us this morning. Jesus, thank you for being sufficient, for not having flaw, that there's no shadow or variation in you, that you are complete, fully set apart. Without flaw, there's just, there's no chink in you, not even the smallest hint of a blemish. All that we need is in you. And thank you for extending that to us, Lord. Thank you for not seeing yourself as perfect and saying, well, that makes me too good for them, but saying, I want that to be a part of their lives and inviting us back into relationship with you, the relationship we were created to have. Lord, we want to respond. Help us see the threats that live within us. Help us see the threats that exist outside of us. And not let those things solely or muddy the relationship that we have with you, the way that we approach you, the way that we relate to you. Guard us from those things and help us guard ourselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.